0: Um, Tonight um, is about the arrival of God's people uh, to the destination that they have been headed towards for a long time. Uh, Of course, um, there's a greater destination beyond this one, and of course, it seems like always in the journey um, of following the Lord, there's always... Um, there's always another mission to go on, another destination to head towards. But tonight we arrive, or they arrive, at Mount Sinai, and we kind of ended at this scripture last week, um, but it was more of a kind of a summation to the to the text from um, to the previous chapters. So uh, tonight we're going to begin to talk about what happens at Mount Sinai, and it's very important because they stay at Mount Sinai for a long time. Uh, they camp out around this mountain for uh, really the, the rest of Exodus uh, takes place while they're camping around the mountain. Um, Most of Leviticus takes place while they're um, camping around the mountain. They depart, and they moved in the wilderness, and they kind of stop here and there, Um, and then they begin to make circles around the mountain, which was not part of the plan until uh, some plans go awry. Anyway, we'll get to that much later from now, but uh, again, we've been studying Exodus for really the better part of a year now, And we've seen some awesome and some pretty big events and moments. I I, I think so. I hope you've enjoyed our study and our time so far. Uh, We were introduced to the Exodus generation from this top down perspective, uh, from a heavenly perspective. And by that I mean we were introduced to Exodus kind of uh, from a narrator who was watching this, observing this, kind of catching us up um, as to what happened between Genesis and Exodus in this story um, uh, of ancient Israel. Um, and, And the story begins. Uh, and we're informed that Jacob's descendants went from guests of honor in Egypt. If you read Genesis, you know the story ends with Joseph being lifted up as a leader in Egypt, his family being welcomed, given the best of the land to be guests of honor to the Egyptian empire. Um, Jacob's descendants go from being guests of honor, however, to being oppressed slaves, um, to being a nation, uh, a, a very uh, a very numeric, large nation um, of slaves under under the grip of the Egyptian kingdom, now, they spent years—four hundred plus years—in suffering, stumbling under the weight of Egypt's tyranny. And, and the legend of their ancestors, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, seemed more like fiction. Than history, you can imagine this was before um, the written word. Right? There may have been, you know, uh, parchments, and there may have been um, things that were jotted down, but it wasn't as prolific as it is in our day and age, or as it has been for the last few hundred years with the printing press. Um, there were no books on the shelf that told the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There were oral stories. There were there were tales, and there were you know stories that had been stretched and retold and reshaped and re you know imagined. And, and but honestly, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even if they were only a few hundred years old, that was a long, a long, long time in, in terms of oral tradition. Um, and, and most of the people of the Exodus generation remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as mere legendary figures, as fictional heroes of their past, not necessarily as historical figures, right? Because they had no concept. All this was a few hundred years ago. They had no understanding of history like we do. And, and it didn't seem that they remembered or even knew of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was maybe even more so a myth to them as well, because after all, they lived in a land of many gods. They lived in a land where the uh, Pharaoh represented the sun god. They were dominated by all sorts of idols and shrines and gods, and the whole world had different gods that they worshipped. So this idea of this single god that this man named Abraham heard from and listened to and worshipped, it was a myth, to the Hebrew people. But as we're introduced to these people, as we're told about the people of Israel in bondage, we're introduced to the narrator of the story, which is the God above the nation of Egypt. From above, the one and only God looked on, and He was not being passive, but He was planning. He was not surprised by what was going on. In fact, He was sovereign in the midst of what was going on. He had not been asleep for 400 years, but He was in charge in everything that had happened in those 400 years, including how how despondent and how clueless the Jews were. He was planning something big. He was sovereign in moment. He observed as his people fell into slavery and lost connection with him. And now we're at the mercy of the serpent king. Of course, back in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent, the cunning sly one of the creative order, um, brought a a message to Adam and Eve. He deceived them and he lied to them and he brought them under the curse that we find out he too was under this, 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 this bondage of sin. He introduced sin into the world and now we turn to the book of Exodus and there is no serpent crawling on the ground, but there is a king with a crown with a serpent on it and He is ruling and oppressing God's people. I don't think there's any irony at all in that. I think that's part of the story showing us how far people had fallen, but also showing us that God had a plan. Yes, God was silent, but He was not absent. They did not know what He was up to. They didn't even know Him But up above, he was planning not just to reveal himself to the Jews, not only to rescue them from Egypt, but to redeem the whole world from the sin and the whole world from their serpent king. It seems that the serpent king must have caught wind from heaven as to what God was about to do because Pharaoh in Exodus 1 orders a mass murder of all the baby boys as if they could possibly pose a threat to him, right? I mean, if he were to order an attack on the strong and burly men of the Hebrew camps, that would be understanding, right? Because, hey, at least these men can't possibly lead a rebellion. But why in the world would he bring an assault on the babies unless... Unless he knew that God had a plan to raise up a child that would be his undoing. Unless he knew that out of that generation a baby boy would come who would be a savior for his people. One of those baby boys was spared and adopted by the serpent king's daughter. Ironic, isn't it? The serpent king's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, brings this baby boy, drawn out of water, she names him Moses, right? Drawn out of the water, she brings him uh, into her family. Maybe her dad knew, maybe he did not know, but she raises Moses as an Egyptian. She kept him hidden and protected. And when his identity was revealed years later, he would spend years in the wilderness finding refuge until the fullness of time had come. But from above, God was not surprised. And God was not passive. He was planning and He was sovereign. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for the rescue, came, for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew Them And he wanted them to know him because they were crying out, not to him specifically, but just for anybody, somebody, anywhere, anyone to listen and help them. And the God of their ancestors heard and the God of their ancestors remembered and the God of their ancestors moved in their direction. And after 40 years, God decided the time was right to show that he had seen and that he knew. It was time for Israel to meet and know their long lost God. So he finds Moses on the backside of the desert. Moses, now a shepherd, had chased a a group of his flock down into the southern peninsula, had found a mountain called Sinai. And it was at the mountain, at the foot of that mountain, that his life would change forever. Moses had heard memories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of their God as well. But God wanted him to know him personally. I'm not just a myth. I'm not just a legend. I'm not just their God, but I can be your God. And that's where the story began, right? That's where all of this began to take shape and the most, one of the most wonderful stories in all of history began to take off. That There is a God that we can know and Yahweh is that God. The great I am of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one that Moses met on the mountain. He is the God that you and I can know. He is bigger. He is more and, uh, than our wildest imagination can ever come up with. He is inviting us to come and know Him. And as He met Moses at the foot of that mountain, the story of how people can connect with God began. Remember, God called Moses from this burning bush and He said, Moses, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. And of course, Moses thought, this is just dirt, God, or whatever, whoever you are. This is not holy at all. But God began to... reshape and redefine how Moses saw the world. Moses did not know what was going on. He didn't know who was talking to him. So God introduces himself as Yahweh. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face, right? Moses was terrified because he had heard of that God. He thought that God was a myth. He didn't believe that that was really a God or had really, you know, had any idea that he could meet that God and know that God because he lived in a land of many gods. But Yahweh shows himself to Moses and says, I am the one you've heard about. And from now on, you're going to know me. You're going to experience me. You're going to encounter me. And he gives Moses an invitation. He says in verse number 12 of chapter 3, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses, I've got a mission for you. Go into Egypt and walk into Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And when he says, who sent you? Say, I am sent you. And when he doesn't understand who I am is, you're going to show him who I am is. And when he is so convinced that I am is the one true God, you're going to march out of that land, you're going to cross a great sea. You're going to come back to this mountain and your story will begin. He reveals himself as Yahweh and the great I am and he commissions Moses to go back and face the serpent king who was now a new pharaoh, possibly Moses's stepbrother. He still wore the serpent crown. Many have and still wear this crown of the enemy and maybe they know, maybe they don't know That this world isn't a battlefield of kings and queens of flesh and blood. But the episode from Exodus is an episode that has been repeated throughout history. An episode, a cosmic conflict between heaven and hell, spirit and sin, between the Creator and the rebel. And the reason the reason the Creator doesn't just banish the rebel, I mean, couldn't He have banished the rebel in the garden? Couldn't He have just banished the rebel in Exodus? The reason the Creator does not banish the rebel is because in the corner of the rebel, in the corner of the serpent, the Creator's most prized possession are in the clutches of the enemy. And the Creator went to war to redeem the most prized possession, me and you. The Creator went to war to redeem us before He rushed and judged the rebel. And even now, even now, God remains patient for all to come and know Him. God told Moses that he hadn't just woke up, but all of this, the slavery, Egypt, his own exile, was all a part of a plan. A plan to not just reveal God to Israel, but to the whole world. We've come back to this Scripture from Exodus 7 a a bunch of times. God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So what is the purpose of all this? Why did God allow Israel to become slaves and suffer so long and so greatly? So that Egypt could know so that the world might know. Because when Egypt is toppled by the smallest of people, when Egypt crumbles because of a slave revolt, people won't be able to deny that something miraculous happened. And when that slave group marches across the desert and takes a land that belonged to their fathers, when those slaves become a kingdom, right, in the land of Israel, people will know for generations to come that there is a God in Israel and He is the one true God. And isn't that just what the history books tell us? Isn't that how it all unfolded and when it all was taking place live and, 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 and for the first time, I'm sure most people did not believe it would ever amount to this, but we stand here 3,000 plus years later and we have this undeniable understanding that God did something amazing that the world still talks about. And nobody cares about history from 3,000 years ago except for the history of Israel, except for the history of what God was up to. Because what God did with Israel was not just plant a nation. It was bigger than that. God would use Israel to confound Egypt and to carry His presence and power to the world. And we here on the other side of the world know this personally, don't we? But first they had to get out of Egypt. And we've read that story. The Passover story is their salvation, right? The Red Sea is their baptism, their proclamation to the whole world that we have come out of sin, we've come out of bondage, and we are saved people. And now they arrive at the destination that Moses began his journey from. He left the mountain to go get them, right? Isn't that some some symbolic picture of a Savior leaving the mountain to come down into the trenches to save His people, lead them across the waters? And now the Savior, the Deliverer, brings His people back to the mountain where they experienced the fullness of God, this transcendent moment where the Jews, almost as if they stepped into heaven, or rather that heaven touches earth. Now we've done this comparison. I think this is a helpful. It helps me. If Passover was their salvation, if the Red Sea was their baptism, Mount Sinai is their Pentecost. Mount Sinai is when the Spirit of God falls on them and fills them and changes them and commissions them, much like what happens in Acts chapter 1-2. and And when you read the whole story, it becomes so clear that this is a moment of encountering God's presence. They were saved by the blood. They were washed by the water. And now they're filled with the Spirit. And it's so poetic. It's so much of a picture of what you and I What anybody can experience through salvation. They camp around the mountain and they truly meet and encounter and experience the one true God as they're prepared to represent Him and reach the ends of the earth for Him. And I think it worked. It sounds a lot like Acts chapter 1 and 2 if you read it and compare. They come to the mountain in Exodus 19. This was what they had heard about for years all along. We're going to a mountain. We're going to a mountain. And they arrive at the mountain of God. And I love telling the story. Maybe you can tell. I love telling this story. God speaks over them. He speaks over us. He invites us to know Him along our path. In Exodus, I can truly say I've come to know Him deeper and greater than ever before. This study has been a lifesaver for me, and I hope I have the privilege to go back through it again someday because I'm sure another pass will be even more life-changing. For just a few minutes, we're going to read the first part of 19. And I want you to hear this text with fresh and open ears. What it was like for them to arrive at the mountain of God. Can you imagine what that was like? And maybe there's something we can learn and apply in our own walks with God. The word says in Exodus 19, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure, a prized possession to me above all the people. For all the earth is mine, but you are something special. And you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God has some pretty favorable things to say to his people as they arrive at the mountain. I want you to pay special attention to verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, they saw it. They lived it. We just get to read about it. But when you think about how this personally applies to us as Christians... I mean, good church, we sing about it louder and louder each week. We study God's Word, run every passage in Word and message through this lens because God did the most incredible thing to redeem us, didn't He? He watched, He planned, He waited until the right time, at the right time in history, so that it would properly spiral farther and beyond its original stage. God sent a Savior. God sent His Son. God sent Jesus to earth. He lived and He taught and He opened eyes of so many people. And he raised the standard so high. People who watched him knew this must be what it's like to be connected to God. He speaks with such truth. He has this authoritative, he has this authentic, authentic, authentic connection with God. He is one of a kind. There is no one like this man we call Jesus the Nazarene. And then Jesus began to show other people that they too could have what he had. He modeled a life connected to God. He demonstrated a life empowered by God and he shared this place of privilege. Over and over again, he would reach down to the ones lower than anybody else, to those that were lame, those that were outcasts, those that were broken, those that were despondent, those that were forgotten by society. He would reach a handout to people, the poor, the blind, the beggar, the, the outcast, and he would say to them, you can be connected to God. You can be filled with God's power. He promised people that, and he would share with them the power that many thought only he could possess. But there was one problem. If you read the Gospels, you know the problem. If you read the history, the whole Bible, you know the problem. Jesus knew that flesh and blood could not obtain glory on its own and that we could not escape sin on our own. See, if you read the Gospels, this is why they're, they're so fickle. It's why they're so high in one chapter and so low in another chapter. It's why in ancient Israel they would have days where they were so holy and days where they were so unholy. It's why the story of Abraham is a story of a man who believed the impossible, but also a story of a man who had some pretty big moral failures. It's why the story of David is one of a man who stood before giants and did great things for God, but also a man who fell into very great sin. It's why you read stories in the Old Testament of kings who were so anointed by God doing things on some occasions that were so offensive to God. Because as close as we could get to it and as, taste, as, as much as we could taste it on our own we could not obtain glory. And on our own we could not escape sin. And when Jesus would speak words of life to people, when He would heal people and do miracles, people would say you are the Messiah of God but those same people would walk away. Those same people would forget. Those same people Just like me and you. In the house, it was so powerful. But in our houses, when nobody's looking, there's something missing. Jesus knew that we could not obtain glory on our own and we could not escape sin on our own. As with Israel, God revealed, but the enemy conspired. The people bounced back and forth, never grasping, never fully getting it, not being able to hold on to it. This is why the religious Jews opposed Jesus. The people who should have accepted Him opposed Him rather than embracing Him. He was accused of threatening the law of Moses and Jesus knew He was actually fulfilling it. He knew those that opposed Him knew not what they were doing. They were simply tied up by the same serpent as many had been before and have been since. And for this reason, when Jesus was done with his earthly ministry, when he had poured out everything he came to say, on the eve of Passover, he took the winding serpentine path I guess the slide's not there. He took the winding serpentine path to a garden outside the city where he prayed and waited for the serpent to come and bind him up. He surrendered and passed from the Jews, was passed from the Jews to the Romans. Jesus stood before Pilate again, not merely on the battlefield of flesh and blood, but in a war zone between heaven and hell. And that day, the serpent king of that day thought it hilarious that Jesus dare oppose Rome. But Jesus assured Pilate that he and his kingdom would get the last laugh. Pilate was insulted. He washed his hand, he turned him back over to the Jews, a beaten, bloody, broken husk of a man. And Jesus was led up a mountain. Not a mountain basking in glory, but a mountain shadowed by darkness. And on that mountain, that was said to resemble a skull, they crucified him. And it was there that Jesus did something that no one could have ever seen coming. It was there that Jesus took on a cross. He appealed to God and apprehended the devil for us. See, we couldn't come to God on our own. And if we ever got there, we couldn't stay there. Jesus appealed to God for us and he apprehended the devil, he defeated the devil. He forgave us on behalf of God. He delivered us from the devil. So Jesus did the things that we could not do. He brought us to God and He separated us from the devil. He forgave us of our sin and He delivered us from the enemy. He was left to die. He was buried and no one expected the name of Jesus the Nazarene to ever be remembered again. But when the sun finally came back up on Sunday morning, the Son of God rose back up too, right? He ascended to a place higher than an earthly mountain to the highest of heavens where His glory shines brighter and brighter where He calls to us all come and see come to me so when we read verse number 4 see what I have done oh it's different for us isn't it it's bigger and better and beyond what was just previewed in the book of Exodus because God did something for you and me personally God did something for us eternally Jesus and the kingdom did get the last laugh, didn't they? Pharaoh and Pilate and every serpent in history are mere footnotes to the greatest story ever told. Just imagine, if we were to go back 3,300 years and in one of the Jewish camps where the slaves lived, maybe it was on The morning when Egyptian guards went through the camps and began slaughtering babies. As those midwives, some helped them out, but others took the babies and drowned them in the river. If you and I were to drop into that story and say, don't worry guys, a couple hundred years from now, a couple thousand years from now, No one is going to remember Pharaoh as a great man. No one is going to be afraid of Pharaoh and his empire. But one of your Jewish baby boys is going to go on to lead these people out of this land and they are going to go on to become a nation and that nation is going to go on to send a Savior to the cross and that Savior and that cross is going to be remembered all around the world as the salvation from heaven for all people. Would they believe you? And if we were to go back to the Roman Colosseum as women and children were dragged into the Colosseums, fed to lions as men were beheaded as they were crucified on the hills around Rome, if we were to go back and we were to go into this arena of death where there were thousands of people who went to the arena every single Sunday for the big game, which was watching Christians being tormented. If we were to go back and slip into that arena and say, can we just please pause the event for just a minute, these Christians, these people that you are killing and tormenting, one day, Rome will not be remembered for you all. Rome will be remembered for these men and women and children. And all around the world, Rome will be a symbol for what Christianity became. Not what Caesar did. Can you imagine If they would have believed a single one of us. But Pharaoh and Pilate are footnotes. Every serpent is a footnote to the greatest story ever told the story of how you came to know the one and only God. Not just my story, your story. God says of us in verse number five that we are his special treasure. That's what he says. You are his special treasure and he says of us that we are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy people unto him. This isn't just about Israel, but we are God's treasured possessions plundered from the enemy, purposed for earth and prized for eternity. So why would we not obey him? What does verse number uh, verse number seven say, or verse number eight? Or excuse me, I back up. Verse number five: If you will indeed obey me, my voice, and keep my covenant, why would we not? I mean, if he says this of us and he has done what he's done for us, why would we not obey him? How could we not obey him? If this is our story, if this is our song, if Yahweh is our God, if there is a God inviting us, if there is, is there anything more valuable? Is there anything more worthy than pursuing him? No. And something inside of you comes to life when you hear this story. Something inside of you comes to life when you're in these buildings, when you read God's Word, and you know there's nothing greater to live for. And the question, should I obey Him, is is a silly question. Of course you should. The Scripture says that Moses came and called the elders of the people, laid before him, him all the words which God had commanded, and the people answered together, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. How could you not? Right? How can we not wake up every single day and say, all that you have spoken, we will do? God has a plan for you every single day. He has a will that's best for us in light of all of this. We should not expect anything less from Him. Verse 9 says, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. God says to me and you every day, I am coming towards you. I am approaching you. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come up, come down upon the mountain in sight of all the people. So what is God telling the people? In light of what I've done, in light of who you are, get ready for me to move into your life and get ready for what we can do together. Do you wake up with that kind of attitude every day? Do you awake to this arrival every day that God says to Moses, tell them to get ready. Tell them to wash their clothes. Tell them to change whatever they got to change. Tell them to repent of whatever they've got to repent of. Tell them to accept whatever they need to accept. Whatever it takes, don't spoil, don't waste your life. We waste it so much, don't we? We forget there's a God on a mountain inviting us to come and see. Come and know. Now if you read the rest of this story, God sets limits for them because they were just getting a preview. They could not touch. They could not ascend. They could not approach the mountain because in their sin, they would die in the presence of God's holiness. Of course things have changed for us. In Christ, we have been anchored and we have been accepted in salvation. Only Moses is invited up, but thanks to the Word, we get to go up with Him. And nothing that was said between God and Moses in chapter 20 through chapter 33 is kept secret. The Word shows us all that we were all included. It was all to us because God is all for us His presence can be experienced by all of us. So even though they couldn't go up the mountain, we on this side of history get to read what God said because God has something for all of us. And because of Jesus, we don't have to just stand back and wonder what it's like. Jesus is a better Moses. Not just standing for us, but standing with us, surrounding us, His Spirit filling us. Hear this from Hebrews 12 as Paul compares what the Jews got a taste of to what we get in full. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire to the blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet, the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them because they were afraid, because they felt unworthy. For they could not endure what was commanded. If so much a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned." And they were terrified in the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. And here's what Paul says, we are not like them. We haven't come to a mountain that we can't even get near because it's too holy for us. But we have come to a mountain called Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Did you hear the comparison there? That they got a picture, they got a glimpse, but we get the full dose. You know, Abel was the first victim of the serpent. His blood spoke of the agony of sin, but Jesus' blood reminds us and promises us greater things, victory, glory, and honor. We just have to come to the mountain. Every day, God bids us to come. Every day, He invites us to ascend and experience His goodness. We arrive at the foot of this mountain every day, and God approaches us. Before you get out of bed, before you go to work, before you do anything, make big decisions, small decisions, whatever, before anything happens, every day, throughout the day, God approaches you, and He reminds you, You're at the foot of my mountain. Before you sin, after you sin, When you think about him, when you don't think about him, when you arrive, you're always at the foot of that mountain. And he says to you, Would you come with me? Every day you have a decision, you have a choice that you can ascend that mountain, you can ascend and experience the presence of God. And I pray, I pray in light of what God has done for us that we don't waste our lives. After all, why would we? There's no rational explanation. And thanks to the supernatural work of Jesus, the Spirit of God calls every single one of us to come. So I pray you listen to these words. Read that chapter in Exodus. Remember that we get to take a step farther because of Jesus and take advantage of it every single day. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. I'm thankful. I'm very thankful to get to stand in front of your people and just celebrate who you are and the invitation you've given us lord i pray these words ring loud over your people as you said to the jews look at what i've done you've seen what i've done you've experienced me you've watched me you have observed me why, why would you go anywhere why would you turn any other way Father, I pray that we would observe what Jesus has done for us and that we would look back at this picture in the Old Testament and see it in full in the new. And I pray that we would make the decision that there's nothing else worth living for. There's no one else worth living for. There's no better way. There's no more acceptable way. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you've allowed us to be on this side of history to just piece all this together. Lord, it's so awesome. God, I pray as we arrive at the foot of that mountain every day, as you approach us every morning. I pray we have you give us the sense, the wisdom, and the courage to ascend to whatever you have in store for us. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.